I'm Holly Gibson. I'm the co-founder of Direct-to-Source. And I'll tell you a little bit about my background first. I've been in this industry for 33 years now. I went to college to be an apparel designer. That's what my degree is in. I started off my career as a pattern maker, worked my way up to be an assistant designer and then a designer. My last job when I was on the design, the brand side, I was a head designer for a company called Russell Newman working out of Texas. I was in charge of a $20 million division for them. Fast forward to today, I'm on the production side. I came over to the dark side of production, and I think for no other reason than I've been around for so long. It was a very different world when I started in this industry. We still made everything in the U.S. And so as part of the design team, we were in the factories all the time to collaborate with them, to make sure that our designs were easily producible. We were there at the start of a production run to make sure that things coming off the line were done correctly and were the right quality. And even as we watched everything go offshore, it was still very different than it is today. We still spent a tremendous amount of time traveling to the factories in Turkey and Egypt and Guatemala and all over the place to work with those factories, both from a development perspective and a production quality perspective. I think having spent so much time in factories, that's how I ended up on the factory side, which kind of segues us into how to direct a source start. I had gotten interested in sustainability about 15 years ago, just from the perspective, if we can make better choices, shouldn't we? And I ended up sort of being an accidental consultant that kind of happens in this business, even though it's a global business, it's still fairly small and everybody knows everybody or has connections to everybody. And I was working with some brands on sustainability, not only source and make sustainable designs, but looking at fabrics and different initiatives that was still pretty early in the sustainability conversation 15 years ago. And then the next question that happens, the brand says, great, can you help me get my line manufactured now? And so we spent a short period of time being brokers because we didn't own the factories. We were just acting as agents to place those customers' orders in other factories. And we placed them in Guatemala. My buddy Tulio lives there. We had become friends back when I was a head designer in Texas. He ran all of our Guatemala production back then. And we just kind of hit it off. So we were working to place all this production in certified factories in Guatemala. And I get a phone call one day. Tulio said, get down here, which is not ever something you want to hear. So I did. Hopped on a plane, went down, and we'd given the orders to a certified factory. And it's normal, normal, normal in this business. They subcontracted out to a different factory to actually do the sewing. Because Guatemala is a small country, because Tulio is Guatemalan, he was able to figure out where it went. And so we go and we inspect, and it's not good. It's not a legal factory. There's a lot of things that you can surmise from that. It also is a very dangerous environment. It's it's a multi-story building. There's one entrance and one exit, and the doors are locked. And so if there were a fire or a disaster to happen, there's a lot of people that are going to be hurt. We said, all right, we can't, we can't do this. How do we solve for this? And we spent a ton of time scratching our heads and talking about different scenarios, and we couldn't figure out how to prevent our orders from being subcontracted out to various other factories, which you just don't have control of, particularly if you're a smaller brand or a mid-sized brand even. Our ultimate decision was, here's how we control that. We build our own factory and hire our own employees. So we spent a long time planning for that. And we went to these three mid-sized customers that we were working with. And we said, hey, we have this idea. We want to build a factory and we want to do all of these interesting initiatives in really looking at the way about how to do business differently. And essentially, will you be our guinea pigs? And they all three said yes. So that's what we did. We rented a space. We hired some people. We did a bunch of training. And for two years, we only worked with those three customers while we were perfecting our systems, perfecting our training, really working in concert with them to say, how do we make this be a win for everybody? How do we solve some issues that factories have that leads to bad decisions in terms of how they pay and working conditions and working hours? Suffice it to say that we spent a lot of time working with those three customers customers to work out systems that where everybody won. Everybody had a really good experience and everybody got what they needed out of that type of working relationship. Fast forward a couple years, we said, hey, we got this. We're very happy with the systems. We're firing on all cylinders. We went to our landlord and said, hey, 
we're just not going to renew our lease. We had rented an office building, which was great for a testing ground, but not sufficient to actually be a working factory. We needed more space if we were going to take on additional customers. And our landlord said, wait, wait, we love having you here in the community. How about you let me build you what you want? I happen to own the land next door. And so, of course, we said, wow, and thank you. And that's what we did. So we built our very own factory building to wrap and country and better than that codes. That's where we work out of today. Welcome to Green Book Conversations. You just listened to the story of how Direct-to-Source was founded. Next, we'll be going over every stage of apparel manufacturing in order. We'll start by clarifying some simple but important concepts in production. Then we'll move through each step from design to quality control and shipping. Find timestamps in the description or head to directtosource.com. So you mentioned that you and Tulia started off as brokers. What is a broker and where would you run into them? Brokers are essentially middlemen. Right. So as we were being brokers, you know, we the brand would contract with us to go get their manufacturing. We would go find the fabrics, buy the fabrics from the mills. We would go find the trims. We would work with the other factories. In our situation, you know, we were communicating with the brands. They came down and visited these factories, too, so they knew. But that's actually not normal. Most brokers and there's brokers everywhere in the world that do this. It creates opacity in the system because like if you're working with a broker in India or China, on one hand, it seems like it's easier because they probably speak pretty good English and they say, oh, no problem, no problem. I I can take care of everything for you. And that can be comforting. And, And there are some good brokers out there. But here's what I see as a problem with that. You don't know who your factory is. You don't know who your fabric supplier is. You don't know any of these things. And I think not knowing is not a good thing. I think you should know these things as a brand, because if you don't know where your stuff was sewn, you don't know what those working conditions are like. If you don't know where your fabrics came from, how can you guarantee that they didn't come out of a slave labor, or at least be reasonably assured that they didn't come out of a slave labor situation? And so I think that is the trouble with brokers. You don't own the relationships. They do. Direct-to-source claims that it's full package manufacturing. Can you tell me what full package manufacturing means? Full package means that essentially the factory is taking care of everything. The sourcing, the fabrics, the sourcing, the trims, the cutting, the sewing, the packaging. So you're buying a finished shirt instead of you have to go buy the fabric and you have to go buy the buttons and you have to go buy the thread and you have to go you know, hire the factory to do something. And so the big difference there is most offshore, so most things overseas and not within the United States, are full package. Um, not all of them, but most of them are. And most factories in the United States don't do full package. And so you have to go source your fabric and get it sent to the factory. You have to go source all the other components and have them sent. We're super flexible. So unlike a lot of people who are like, this is the way you do it and this is the only way to do it. um, If you have a fabric source that you like, we can either use that fabric source or you can send us the fabric. So that would be considered partial package. So we're here invested with you to make the best product. So we're actually flexible on the way. But for virtually all of our customers, we do run it as full package because it's so much easier. There's just a lot less legwork for you to do. Is there any other differences between domestic production versus doing production internationally? There's tons, actually. So, um, you know, there's been a big push for a number of years now. Let's bring production back to the United States. And some has come back, which is super exciting. The pros of manufacturing in the U.S. is you manufactured in the U.S. And in theory, you can like run over and check on your factory and see how things are going. You get to know people, which is a great thing. Some factories, if they're not in your town, you're still getting on a plane. So you're really you're traveling for several hours anyways on a plane. But one of the negatives about producing in the United States is our cost of living here, right? And in most, you know, the production tends, it's spread out, but it tends to be concentrated in LA or New York, and there's a few other pockets of it. But we have very high wages here, and we have a very high cost of living here. So you're essentially paying 20 bucks an hour or more to have your garments sewn then. So it makes it prohibitive to manufacture a lot of things in the United States just because of the cost of it. The other issue is that we've really lost a generation of skill. When we shipped all these jobs offshore in the early 90s, we've lost that. And so in a lot of cases, you just can't even get the quality in the United States that you can get overseas. 
I guess then on the converse side, the challenges of working overseas, it's an email, it's a phone call, you don't know the factory. Some of them are very far away. Like if you're producing in China or Indonesia or India or Pakistan, you know, you're very, very far away. It's very hard. So you're up in the middle of the night working because that's when they're working. That's one of the advantages of, of nearshore. And nearshore means Central America, Mexico, South America, because it's very near to the shores of the United States. And you're typically within the same time zones. Your shipping time is a lot faster. And for example, if you want to come to our factory in Guatemala, we're three and a half hours from Miami, a direct flight to Guatemala City. So that's actually not that much more difficult than going to visit a factory in L.A., for example, if you're in the middle of the country somewhere. So the advantages of nearshoring are lower cost of wages, lower cost of living, which is why wages are lower. Just to give you a really good example, you know, if I were to take the team out here in Denver to a really, really nice restaurant and we've got like six people and we're going out and we're having dinner and maybe a cocktail before dinner, here in Denver, that's probably today going to cost $400, maybe more. We can take the same quantity of people to a restaurant that is just as good in Guatemala and it'll be about $150. So the cost of living difference is just enormous, which is why it is less expensive to sew overseas. And in many cases, there's better sewing quality overseas because they didn't lose that generation of people. Sewing is head knowledge, but it's also muscle memory. And so there's there's just a different caliber of sewing that happens. There's always exceptions, of course, but as a rule, you get better quality overseas. Production. The first stage is design. So could you tell me about what's involved in the design process? So the design process is kind of what everybody knows about and thinks about, right? That's the super creative portion of the process where you're thinking up what do you want to make. And I would say, yes, that's super valuable. But as you're looking at your design phase with the end game of producing in mind, because you're going to make many quantities of something, and you're going to sell those to customers, not just a one-off, right? That you need to start thinking about, is this a fabric that I'm going to be able to buy in the quantities I need? Is this something that can be produced in a factory? What's the price point going to be, right? You go, oh, I want to make this dress and I want to sell it for a hundred bucks because that's kind of where I think my customer can pay. And then you put all these bells and whistles all over embroidery and sequins and layers and layers of fabric, tucks and pleats and darts, you're not going to make it and be able to sell it for $100. So there is sort of a thought process behind designing with the end game in mind. It doesn't take away from your creativity, but it does channel your creativity into something that is going to ultimately be producible and saleable. How does the design process affect what kind of quantities you're going after? Like, am I hiring a factory or a seamstress? You know, some brands, particularly when they're starting out, they're like, oh, I want to make a dozen of these. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If you think you can sell a dozen, you should make a dozen. However, you can't take that to a factory. That's samples. A factory can't produce a dozen. Most factories can't produce 50, although a few will. A few smaller factories can or will. And they're kind of sort of large sample rooms at that point is what they are. But like if you're saying like, I need a dozen or a couple dozen units to start out, then really you should be working with a local pattern maker, a local sewer who can then go produce those units for you until you get large enough to work with a factory because all factories have minimums. It could be 50 pieces, it could be 100, it could be 300, it could be 3,000, it could be 30,000. It depends on the factory. Into the second stage, we talk about development. You've said before that development and design are different stages entirely. How are they different from each other? So like I said before, the design stage is really that super creative, right? You're thinking color palettes and mood boards, and and that's a super fun process. But you know, you're probably either doing that yourself or you're working with a professional artistic designer to do those things. Once you hit the development phase, that's really when you're going, okay, these are my five styles, and this is what they need to look like more or less. You're pretty dialed in on it. And I think these are the kind of fabrics and this is the kind of price point. And so now how do we get that from some beautiful photos and some sketches or even an ugly napkin sketch? How do we get that into a final garment that we can try on somebody and perfect it before we get to production? And that is the development phase. So you're working typically then with a technical designer. They're going to create a sketch of your garment that is a technical sketch, which outlines 
how many buttons it's going to have, where the stitching is, where the zipper goes, where the elastic goes, all of those details that you need to make the garment work. From there, you make a tech pack. So a tech pack is just a collection of documents that enable you to fully develop a garment. I know that sounds kind of broad, but a lot of people have a question about what is a tech pack. And when you see different formats, you'll see a bunch of different formats. So if you're creating, let's just talk t-shirts because that's easy, right? It doesn't need to be 47 million documents. You'll have your technical sketch, some sewing information, like what kind of hems are going in it, is the neck taped, things like that. And you'll have your measurement specs, which is going to have your key measurements for all sizes. So what's your chest measurement? How long is the shirt? How long is your sleeve? And that might be about it, right, on something as simple as a T-shirt. On something, if it's like a technical running pant that has zippers and hidden pockets and some, you know, gussets at the knees, you're going to have a lot more drawings. You're going to have a lot more instructions about how to make that. From there... You have to make a pattern. And I have a lot of people say, well, I've got a tech pack. Why do I need a pattern? Well, if you think about the process of cutting and sewing a garment, you have fabric and you have a tech pack that has some measurements in it. How do you know what you're cutting the fabric out to be, right? So the pattern is actually taking the tech pack measurements, making that into the pattern pieces that you lay down on the fabric, you cut them out, and then from there you sew your garment. Then you have a sample. And those pattern pieces are typically cut from giant sheets of paper. So old school. Yeah. Oh, this is funny because everybody laughs at me because in different parts of the country, we call pattern paper different things. In Texas, it's pattern paper, but essentially it's like thick. It's like manila file folder paper, but it comes on big rolls. And then in Denver, they call it oak tag. So when I first moved here, I'm like, oak tag, what is that? And they're like, pattern paper. What do you mean pattern paper? You mean marking, you know, the thin paper? No, no, that's not pattern paper. That's marking paper. So it's really interesting. You know, you get into the different semantics just in different parts of the country. But today, most patterns are made in the computer much, much faster. And so very few people make patterns on paper any longer. So after patterns, where do we go from there? So then we're cutting out that um, pattern into fabric and we're sewing up the garment. That's essentially called your phase one. You get to your first sample. And so at this point, you should have a sample. It might be made in the correct fabric. It might just be made in a similar fabric as you're kind of trying to vet out your style. And you're going to hang it on the wall and you're going to say, does this look like it looked in my mind? And the answer is probably pretty close. And there'll probably be some things you want to tweak. And you also want to put it on a human being, right? Like, did I get this right? Does it fit? Oh, that sleeve looks a little too short. Oh, that skirt looks way too short. Whatever that is. Um, and the sample would be the actual sewn. The sample is the actual quote unquote sewn finished mm -hmm. product. Yep. And so then you'll do your fitting. And then there's going to be round two. Not always, but often there'll be a round two. So you have to go, okay, well, I think that I don't like the look of that collar. It's a little too stubby. I need the collar points to be longer. So that would be a visual change. And, oh, that armhole is too tight. It doesn't move correctly. Or the rise in the pants, you know, when you sit down, it's not comfortable. And so you make fit changes and design changes. And you're essentially following that same process again. You're updating your tech pack measurements. You're revising your pattern to match the new design and the new measurements. And then you have to cut and sew a whole other sample. What's the max number of sample iterations you ever had to do before? <laughs> that is a good question. So the max we like to do is two. In many, many garments, it can be done in just a couple. But sometimes, like we had a customer that was developing apparel for bodybuilders. So think Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day before he got into movies. These are very peculiar bodies, right? And so developing garments that would fit these people took a very long time. And I don't remember exactly how many iterations they had started this with another development firm before they finally came to us. And so I think we went through five or six iterations, which is a lot, a lot for us. But I, you know, the more complex your product is in terms of fit and performance, the more iterations you'll go through. But you have to be mindful. The more iterations, the more time, the more money. I don't care who's helping you do it. So you do need to be mindful of your budget when you get into the development process. You'd mentioned grading before. Grading is taking your pattern that you've made on these samples and you're grading it into all of the different sizes. So your sample size was a medium, but you want to run extra small through 2XL. 
So you have to take that medium pattern and they do it in the computer. And there's a complex set of rules that you follow or sometimes break uh, on purpose to get that pattern to reflect all of those different sizes. So you wouldn't need to make a sample for every single size that you're going to produce. You don't. I would say on occasion, we'll definitely recommend that you do that. So if you have a very difficult to fit product, a very, like I said, you know, bodybuilders, we made all of the sizes up to vet our grading because there was no rules for that. But for most companies, most apparel brands, if you're going to run small through 2XL, you have already made your size medium. You're also going to want to make up maybe a small or an extra small. You're going to want to make up an extra large. And that's called a jump set where you're making some of the sizes, but not all of the sizes to vet out that your grade rules are the way you wanted them. Once you've established those, let's say you made um, a button-up shirt and you'd done all this and you came back to a later production run and you wanted another button-up shirt, but maybe it had different pockets and a slightly different looking placket and a different hem. Well, you don't need to do a jump set again because you're using your same grading from before. You've already vetted that it's valid. But when you're doing something entirely new or something that's a real fit challenge, you want to vet more sizes than less. So it's reflective of the complexity of your garment. How do knockoffs tie into the development process and sample work? A couple of different ways. I'll tell you, when you're doing your development and doing your designs in the early phase of development, you frankly should be out shopping other garments from other brands. Not to knock them off, but to figure out what you like about fit. Because that's going to make your iterations that we talked about, you know, the more iterations, the more time, the more money. If you've decided, oh, I love how this neck fits. Oh, I love how this seat fits on the pants. Then you can essentially knock off that seam line. You're not knocking off the whole garment. You're knocking off that seam line or that measurement or that collar measurement to more quickly achieve designing your design. But on the other side of that is nobody wants to be knocked off. Now, I will just tell you, if you're good, eventually you will be. And so spend five minutes being mad and then pat yourself on the back because you had something that somebody thought was so awesome that they knocked it off. But we made some early decisions as a factory. So normally, if you call a swimsuit factory and you say, hey, I want to make swimsuits with you and will you send me some of the designs you've done and you'll get a package with 10 swimsuits in it and it's all it's your competitor's. We decided to be different in this way. So we don't do that. We feel like if somebody wants to knock you off, they can go buy your garment at retail and knock you off. But we don't share your tech packs, your patterns, or your samples with anybody else. We don't send them to them. We don't allow them to have them, whether we create them for you or whether you send them to us. Those are yours. And so if somebody wants to knock you off, they can go buy your garment and do it. But we're not going to provide those things externally to people that aren't required to manufacture for you. Moving into the sourcing phase, that would be going and gathering your where you're going to get your materials for, what your materials are, and sourcing your labor. Right. And, you know, sourcing kind of starts early on when you're thinking about your designs even. What kind of fabrics do you need? What kind of trims do you want on there? But when you get to the true sourcing phase as you're heading into production, you have to finalize things. All of the components required to make your garment from the fabric to the labels to the thread to you know, who's sewing it to the packaging, if you have any embellishment, so embroidery or printing or anything like that on it. And so where are all those things coming from? Getting the costs on all of those, understanding the minimums of all those, because, right, you might work with a fabric mill that has fabric in stock, so you can buy it by the yard or by the roll. You might work with a fabric mill that has to make the fabric. And so they might say, oh, there's a 500-yard minimum. They might say there's a 5,000-yard minimum. They might say there's a 50,000-yard minimum as well. Same thing with trims. You have to say, oh, okay, well, I can buy this button by the dozen, but I have to buy that one by the gross. On labels, you could say, oh, well, I have to buy 5,000 labels or I can't get labels. And so you kind of have to work all of that out to be sourcing from a place that not only has the quality of a component that you want, but also has the quantity that you need for your order. Or in the case of something like labels, who cares if you buy 5,000, you're going to keep using them, right? So that's okay. So there's a lot of complexities into sourcing. And now 
do you have requirements? I mean, certifications come into this a lot because people call us, oh, are you BlueSign certified? Well, BlueSign is a dye certification. It's not actually a factory certification. But if you have a requirement that your fabrics must use BlueSign dyes, then that means you can't source from everybody because some dye mills don't use BlueSign dyes. If you have a requirement that your fabric has to be GRS certified, which stands for Global Recycled Standard, then you have to ask in that sourcing process, or we ask, if we're doing the sourcing for you, which we do for a lot of our customers, you know, then we're asking those questions. But you have to kind of decide those requirements up front. Do you need organic cotton, right? Do you need BCI cotton? Do you need um, Tencel? There's a whole lot of things that go into sourcing. There's also where in the world are you going to get it? right? Because that adds into cost. So if you're getting your fabrics very near to your factory, now you don't have to worry so much about shipping. But what if your fabrics aren't available near to your factory? Are you going to have to ship them in? Where are you going to ship them in? How are you going to do that? So you have to be considerate of those costs in your manufacturing process as well. So you mentioned certifications. Is there any other evaluation that goes into sourcing either on the factory level or where you're getting your supplies that people can look at other than third-party certifications? There's so many certifications out there, and they operate at different levels. Some are for fabrics, some are for yarns, some are for dyes, some are for factories. So there's a ton of them out there. I think the best policy is to say what is important to you, what is important to your brand's values. I'll just give you an example, you know, in a sustainability conversation. So we have two customers that are both very, very into sustainability. And they both approach it very differently because their brand's values are different. And so one of those customers is a beach lifestyle brand, and they have a real value at keeping plastics out of the ocean's waterways off our beaches, right? And so they use a lot of recycled plastics or recycled polyester in their garments. And that's a sustainable fabric, their garments are made sustainably, made ethically. That's part of sustainability as well, um, which is you know a huge focus of ours because we look at sustainability holistically. But that ethos for that brand that performs well for their chosen garments, for the way that they're worn and their purpose, and that's a really good sustainability story for them. We have another customer who's very into sustainability, and they don't want anything that isn't compostable. So a recycled polyester garment or any kind of recycled plastic components is not acceptable to them. Their garments need to be 100% compostable. They're very into planting trees. Uh, and so it's a very different value system for both of them, both equally valid, just different approaches. So their sourcing methodologies, as you can imagine, are quite different in terms of the fibers that they're looking for. So I think the bigger question is, what are your values sourcing products that match to your values. And you also have to understand as a smaller brand, you know, you don't have the clout yet. You're not going to make 30,000 yards of fabric. So you can't tell the mill, I want you to do it like this. Once you can make 30,000 yards of fabric, then you can make all sorts of different choices. But, you know, as a smaller brand, you're like, okay, what can I access that matches my mission and values? And the good news is that today versus 15 years ago, there's a lot of really good choices. I just talked with a customer the other day who said, we really want Ocean Cycle recertified fibers. That's really great but accessing those in the quantities they need is really difficult. So then the conversation became, okay, I understand that you would like this certification, but because those quantities are higher to access that than you want, you have a choice to make. Are you comfortable upping your quantities so that you can get that certification you want? Or would this GRS certification work for you in the time being while you're growing your brand because we can access that in the quantities you want? And so I would say certifications are good, but don't necessarily get so married to specifically this name or that name because it's more about fulfilling your brand's values and mission. And then as you grow, you can grow into some other things that are, you know, like, oh, we would we have goals to do this. And certifications in the factory, I guess, you know, we should mention as well, right? That's also important. Factories are certified for various things. Some are certified for social responsibility. Some are certified for quality. Some are certified for, there's a million different certifications. And again, ask, see what your factories have. But because... All these certifications are expensive and time-consuming. 
you know, if we got every certification that we've had people say, oh, I wish you had this certification, we'd have like 50 or 60 by now. And then we'd probably have to charge you like 40 times as much to pay for all of those certifications. So I think that it's important, but I think it's equally important to have transparency. Where is your fabric coming from? Where are your trims coming from? Who's sewing your clothing? Go visit go get to know them. I mean, that's the way we used to do it. I mean, back in the day, I, I know I've been around for so long, but we didn't have third-party certifications. We actually had people who worked for our company who their whole job was to go be in the factories. And so we really inherently understood at a much deeper level what kind of stuff was happening in those factories. And we could pick and choose factories to work with based upon what was happening because we had feet on the ground. Like, is this a good place to work? Is this a safe place to work? Are people happy working here? Um, and, and that's hard to do when factories are, you know, a 20 hour flight away, but much easier to do like in Guatemala. I mean, we have an open door policy. We actually literally have our doors open because the environment and the climate is so nice and we, we're in a very safe area. So literally you could show up unannounced and walk in and say hi. With a three and a half hour flight, you know, we welcome our customers to come. So getting to know your factory I think is very important. Certifications play an important role, but that relationship also is very important. So this is a question that I think DTS gets a lot and I've answered a few times myself is, I already have my fabrics picked out. I know what I want to use. Can you take them? We can actually. And a lot of factories won't. A lot of factories that are full package, you have to use whatever their vendors are. But because we make so many different kinds of products... And because we work with mills and trim suppliers, in all honesty, all over the world, um, we do focus on this side of the planet whenever possible because that's a lower carbon footprint. We've always done that. But sometimes what you need is just not on this side of the world. And so you're going further afield. But if you come to us and you go, this is our vendor, or I already have, we have a customer just recently that said, I have a ton of inventory on this particular fabric. I'd like to use it up. And so we said, sure, fine, ship it to us. It's not a problem. As long as it's first quality fabric, right? Don't don't send me scraps because we can't really do anything with that, unfortunately. We could send it to be recycled, but um, we can't, you know, cut and sew scraps. But if it's first quality fabric or you've got labels or you've got your hang tags already done, it's totally fine. So we've gone through the design process, have the development done, all the samples, all the tech packs, all the patterns. We've gone through sourcing, got our trims, got our fabrics. Now we're in production. What's the first thing you do when you enter production? We're actually in pre-production. <laughs> so pre-production is the bridge between that development phase and your production phase. And so what does that mean? That means that we're calculating exactly how many fabrics and trims are required for your production order because we don't like to overbuy. Some factories will do this. And you hear dead stock, you'll hear the term dead stock. Dead stock is the factory has overbought the fabric needed for an order, and then the dead stock is what's left over. And so that it gets sold on the open market then at a reduced cost, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong inherently with dead stock, but we really as a company, when we were looking at the different ways we wanted to do things, one of the things was how do we reduce waste? It's very important for direct-to-source that we know what your order is and how much fabric do you need? How many trims do you need for that? And so we're ordering much tighter to what you need. So there is not that dead stock to sell off afterwards, right? Calculating all of that is part of the pre-production process. The review of your pattern in your tech pack. If we did the development for you, we know that the pattern and the tech pack match. But if we didn't do your development for you, if you sent us the pattern in the tech pack, we don't know that they match until we go through it line by line and check it. And you'd be surprised how often they don't match. All of that type of thing needs to be discovered before we actually get into production. The other thing we do in pre-production is make pre-production samples. So for your shirt, we're going to make two samples. You get one and we keep one. And you're going to get that and you're going to say, yes, this is sewn exactly right. The buttons are sewn on correctly. The label is in the right place and is sewn correctly. The placket is sewn the way I want it. So that essentially serves as your quality standard for production. We keep the copy of it so that we have it right there as a physical reference during production. That's a really important part that you never want to skip no matter where you're making your product. And once all that is approved, then we can go to production. 
When I enter production, what is an MOQ? An MOQ stands for minimum order quantity, um, right? And we had talked a little bit earlier about sourcing. Mills will have MOQs and factories do too. And the reason factories have MOQs is because below a certain quantity, you're sewing samples. Factories are able to produce garments at a good cost because we build efficiencies into the sewing system. Our MOQ starts at 300 units of a style that we can sew. Now for us, that means that includes all your sizes. So your extra small to your 2XL. It includes a couple colorways. So you're making a red shirt and a black shirt. Every factory deals with MOQs a little differently. So when you say to a factory, what's your MOQ? And they say 300 pieces, you have to qualify because for some factories that could be 300 pieces per size or 300 pieces per color. So for us, it's 300 pieces per style. And to give you like a little behind the scenes on why that is. So if I'm going to sew a button up shirt and I'm going to sew 300 of them, or if I'm going to sew 3000 of them, setting up the equipment takes about the same amount of time for either, right? Because I have to make sure that I have the right a number of buttonhole machines and button sewing machines and bar tack machines and single needles and sergers and roll hem, whether that's going to be 300 pieces or whether it's going to be 3,000 pieces. What else is involved in the production stage? And what do I have to do as a small brand in that stage? Really during the actual production stage, there's really nothing for you to do for the majority of it, right? You've already approved the pre-production sample. So once that's approved... Then we start cutting and sewing. We cut everything in-house. So it goes to the cutting room. The markers go there. The fabric is spread. The markers are placed on top and everything is cut out. The bundles are taken to the sewing floor and then they start sewing. They have the tech pack there for the key measurements to check during sewing. They have the approved pre-production sample there. So they have a quality standard. If there's a question about how something should be sewn, it's all right there. And I think we're going to talk about quality in a little bit, but there's quality steps the whole time that it's in production. Then we have, of course, full QC process at the end of production. So really there's nothing for you to do. Um, We try to take a couple pictures and maybe a little quick little video so you can see what's happening in your production. I always think that's a lot of fun. We've had some people say, hey, I want to bring, you know, somebody in and video the production run. That's cool. That's fine. You can do that. It's all good for us you know, we finish the production and then we go, okay, here's your packing list. We're ready to ship. So really that's the easiest part for you once it's in production, because there's nothing else for you to do. Did you ever consider setting up a live stream for production? Totally. Actually, we really did. Our only security system, because it's all we need in the factory is we do have security cameras. So we have had conversations about actually recording everything and giving it to customers or allowing people to log into the security system. But you know, there's there's some logistics, technical logistics there that we're not quite there and prepared to do because it ends up being a little costly to set up and allow people all that access. But yes, actually, that would that's something we've actually been talking about for years. So you mentioned that setting up the sewing line for doing 300 units at the very minimum to 3,000 or even more than that, it's the the same amount of setup time. What other differences are there between manufacturing 300 units versus 3,000 or more? It's efficiency. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. So 300 pieces, you're going to have Maria making, maybe she sews on both sleeves and closes the side seams. If she's, if we're making 3,000, Maria is going to set one sleeve and then Jose is going to set the next sleeve. So it's a, it's a slightly different process in that in a bigger line, one operator does one operation. In a small line, one operator has to do multiple operations. So it's just efficiencies. The big line is faster. When you cost a garment, you cost how many minutes it takes to sew it. There's a whole lot of factors that go into costing, but from a sewing perspective, how many minutes does it take to sew? Well, if it takes 20 minutes to sew something because we're only making 300 so it's less efficient, that's going to cost more than if we're sewing 3,000 of the same thing. It's very efficient. And so now maybe it only takes 10 minutes to make that garment. So that's where efficiencies come in in terms of quantities in any factory. We've moved through production, and we put QC entirely its own stage. What is QC? QC quality control, I think it deserves its own separate subject. It's a really important conversation because, yes, nobody wants crummy garments, but, but it's also a factor in sustainability. If your garment is high quality, 
then it's going to be longer lasting, have a longer lifespan, and not go into the landfill or have to be recycled as quickly. And so for us, it's really important to look at the quality because our focus is sustainability. Really, quality is built in from that development phase. It's not just a production conversation, right? So when you're developing a garment and when you're doing sourcing, you're looking at quality way back then. So in the development phase, like how is it sewn? Is it sewn appropriately that it's going to have a long lifespan? When you're doing sourcing, is the fabric washable or does it have to be hand washed? All of those are okay, but what's gonna be the lifespan? Is it gonna pill really bad so it's not gonna last as long? So all of those factors come in really early in the game to build quality into your garment. But from a factory perspective, then, obviously, we're vetting in the pre-production phase those qualities of the pattern, the qualities of sewing. But then when you get into cutting, and I'll just walk you through what we do because we really do have so many points of quality assurance or quality control. So in the cutting room, we only stack the fabric about fingers high. So if you go into a really big factory that's making thousands and thousands of garments, they might stack fabric 16 inches high, 10 inches high, uh, because you have a big knife and you cut it all at once, right? It's very efficient, meaning you get through the cutting very quickly. But when you stack fabric that high, you can run into some quality issues because you can imagine as they're cutting, like the stack could shift a little bit and lean. And so now the garment's on top. The pattern piece is a slightly different shape than the garments that were on the bottom of the stack. So we only stack about four inches high, varies depending on the fabric. And that means we have really good quality cutting. It takes a little bit longer, but we feel like it's worth it. And then we take each of those cut bundles and we compare them back to the original pattern to make sure there weren't any cutting errors. When it comes time to sew, every sewing line has its own quality control manager. And that person's job all day long is to just check on the sewers in their line, make sure that each operation is being done with quality, doing spot check on measurements to make sure that the measurements are coming out accurately. And our goal is always to identify any sewing quality issues early and address them then before the garment's finished, because then we can fix them. Much more difficult to fix something or impossible after the garment's complete. We track, like all factories, it's called a right first time, RFT. We like acronyms like everybody else, I guess. Our goal is 98% right first time, which is pretty high. Most factories don't have a target that's that high. Because we're always inspecting all day long, and because most of our people have been with us for a really long time, we have less than 1% employee turnover which is pretty low. Most of our employees have been around for a long time. They really understand our system and they really take ownership. They're very invested in this as well. And they're not afraid to say, hey, I don't understand or, hey, this is difficult or, hey, I don't think this is working or, hey, I think there's a shading issue or, you know, we, we've had varying things come up over the years that we're able to address really quickly because we have employees who are not concerned or afraid to say, hey, yo, I think there's a problem. I think we need to work on this. So we're able to achieve that 98% right first time percentage. And then when we're done with the sewing process, there's obviously another QC process. And so we follow the 2.5 AQL system, 2.5 acceptable quality level. And so there's rules around this system, and I won't bore you with all of the details, but essentially it says, if you made X number, 300 garments, then you need to pull this many garments for inspection. And so they're inspected not only for the sewing, the QC points that were called out as things to watch, key measurements, and you either pass or fail. If you fail, according to statistically the rules of this system, then you have to pull X number more garments and inspect. And if you fail that, then you have to inspect everything again 100%. There's rules about that. And then we also have packaging QC. So depending on the packaging, what the packaging rules are, the packaging department has a QC process when they're done. And then we have packing QC. So the packing department has QC to ensure that the boxes are packed accurately, labeled accurately. We've gone through the QC for, for the factory end of things. But if I'm a brand or a customer, what's my role in doing QC throughout any of the process? QC is a two-way street, right? We have to understand during the development and the pre-production phase what your expectations of quality and, and are those reasonable? Usually they are, but 
you know, there are tolerances, right? This is fabric. It is human beings sewing it. So, you know, if you say, oh, this seam has to be 18 inches long. Well, it might be 18 and a quarter. It might be 17 and three quarters, right? And so there are tolerances that come into play. So there's, there should be a conversation with what those tolerances are as you're building QC before you go into production. But then at the end game, you know, we have some customers who say, you know, hey, I would like to come in and do QC while my things are being manufactured or at the end before they're packed and shipped. And we say, sure, do that. That's not a problem at all. You're always welcome to come in and do quality control. It's your it's your product, right? And then there are people who say, you know, hey, I can't do it, but I would really like peace of mind is what it comes down to of having somebody else come in and do QC. And, and again, we're open to that. There are companies and there's companies in Guatemala that that's what they do. They're called a third-party QC agency. You hire them and you tell them what to check for and they send people in and they're in our factory. They can either come in at the end. Sometimes they have, they're just sitting there the whole time to do QC the whole time. Um, and so they will do whatever you contract them to do and they are always welcome. So I would say, you know, if you're one of those people who are nervous about that, and it's okay to be nervous about that, get that peace of mind and hire that third-party QC team. And, and they're always welcome in our place. Is that something that's often welcomed in other factories? It varies. A lot of factories do welcome it, but sometimes it's not welcome. But I would say if you can't bring in a third party and that's not allowed, I'd probably wouldn't choose to use that factory, even if I didn't plan on bringing in third party, because I think that's a little telling. But that is a normal thing in the industry, third party QC. That is not a, that's not a weird thing. And so a lot of factories allow that, probably most of them, really. The very last step is shipping and logistics. Now you've got all your finished product and you're shipping it back into the US or wherever you're selling. What else is involved that stage? How's that done? It's not for the faint of heart, really. This is one of the complexities about producing overseas, right? Because it's not in the U.S. And so now you have to deal with international logistics and you have to deal with U.S. customs. We, in our goal, just to make it easy for our customers, we actually handle that process for about 90% of our customers. The other 10% do it on their own. They're big enough to do that. Um, but that's a that's a choice. If I'm a customer, a I can do it myself or I can. Yeah, absolutely. And and we that's not a profit center for us. We just really do it as a courtesy because we're trying to make your life easy. Right? That's our, we we get it because we were on the brand side. So I think we have a little bit of a different sensibility than a lot of factories have because we've been in your shoes. One of our goals was to make your life easy so you can focus on designing great new things, doing your marketing, and taking care of your customers. For us, the shipping and logistics falls into that. So for our smaller customers, what we'll do is we bring in one shipment a month. has everybody's stuff in it, right? Your 300 units, your 800 units, your 1,500 units. So we're bringing in five to 10,000 garments at a time for various customers, meaning the shipping is pretty economical. Plus, remember how close we are because we're near shore? We're not shipping it halfway around the world on a boat, right? It's We're piggybacking on a plane that's actually already headed. So we're going from the commercial airport in Guatemala City to the commercial airport in Miami. So it's not particularly expensive. And then you don't have to worry about it. We clear it through customs on our bond. If you were going to do this yourself, you would be required to purchase a customs bond every year to allow you to import something into the U.S. But because we have offices in the U.S., we keep a customs bond. And so we can clear all of our customers' things through customs. So they don't need a broker. They don't have to deal with U.S. customs, which is a little daunting, in all honesty. But, you know, we do it do it all the time and have been doing it for so long. It's not difficult for us. And then after it clears customs in Miami, it'll go on your UPS or your FedEx account, land at your door, wherever it is in the U.S. you want that. So since the factory is located in Guatemala, it's affected by CAFTA, Central America Free Trade Agreement. Mm -hmm. How does that affect shipping it back to the U.S.? This is a really cool program that um, means there, it is possible to bring some products duty-free into the United States from Guatemala. This is a special negotiated relationship between the two countries. It's what they call a yarn-forward rule. And what that means is the yarn has to be spun and then the fabric knitted or woven, and then the garment cut and sewn within Central America. And then it can be imported into the United States duty-free, which is cool. We do a ton of CAFTA programs, but here's the caveat for smaller brands. 
With very few exceptions, the mills in Guatemala have very high minimums. So you say, oh, I need 500 yards. They say, don't bother me. That's not what they do, right? They, they might sell you 50,000 yards or 5,000 yards, but they're not going to sell you 500 yards. And so for our smaller customers, we really are sourcing primarily in the Americas, but not Central America. And so those pro- products do not qualify for duty-free entry into the United States. So you are paying duties. So now that we've reached the last step, theoretically by this point, a customer or a brand has all their supplies. Is there anything else about factory production that strikes you as important at that point? You know, it's really relationship, right? You really get to know your factory. Um, and, and I encourage you to not just get to know your factory interface person, but get to know the factory, get to know the people in the factory. It's a rewarding experience to develop those relationships across countries and across borders. And as your factory gets to know you and gets to know your product, there's just something gratifying and they can make suggestions on, hey, you know, what about this? Or, hey, we found this new fabric. We not, you know, you like this. They really become your partners. And if you're partnering with your factory, not only are you going to have a better time, But there's just this back and forth that becomes really wonderful. And we have largely forgot that in the way we work today, again, because we're like sending an email and we don't actually know who we're talking to, right? There's not a relationship there. There's an email chain. And used to, we were in the factories all the time. And whether you can be in the factory all the time or not, you can still build the relationship. Go once a year, go every six months if that's all you can swing. But it will just put a different perspective on everything for you and for the way you work together because you're partners in making the best product possible. And that requires communication and it requires trust, right? The factory has to trust the brand that they're going to take care of them and do right by them. And the brand has to trust the factory for exactly the same things. Anything else to add for new people looking to enter the industry or put their designs into production? Yeah, I would say I still think that this is one of the last industries that you can't Google and figure out everything you need to know. It's easier today than it was even 10 years ago, but it's a nuanced apparel production and design is a very nuanced thing. It's people, it's fabric, it's complex. You think, oh, it's just clothes. It's infinitely complex. I think it's why I've been doing it for 33 years and I've never been bored. I might be happy. I might be frustrated. I might have my hair on fire at some point, but I have never, ever, ever been bored. And people have said, why have you done it for so long? Well, that's why, because it's still interesting. There's so many things that you don't know when you're starting out as a new brand. So ask questions, find people who are willing to spend time and give you knowledge, help you make choices. We really feel, you know, at Direct-to-Source, like it's our responsibility to help you make good choices. It's not our decision to choose them for you. It's your company, it's your brand, it's your product. But if we can offer up good information and good choices, then you're making those choices from a point of knowledge. I think that's an interesting part of the relationship, right, is really creating your product, creating your brand, creating your company, it's a journey. You learn all the time and it's a really fun business to be in. 